morning and welcome to Rising. We've made it halfway through the week, I guess. Who's counting? Who's counting? Not <laughs> us. We're having so much fun. So much fun. Fantastic show today for you, of course. Take it away, Bree. Well, Robbie, FBI Director Christopher Wray will testify today before the House Judiciary Committee where he's expected to defend against accusations the Bureau has been politicized. Committee members will likely grill Ray on a new House Judiciary report that alleges the FBI worked with Kiev Intelligence to censor social media accounts critical of Ukraine, something we already knew thanks to journalist Aaron Maté and Lee Fong's separate reporting on the matter. Hmm. Meanwhile, NSA Director Jake Sullivan was asked to respond to accusations that Hunter and James Biden worked at the same Chinese firm that this alleged whistleblower Gal Luft was also working at, just arrested for lobbying on behalf of. Let's watch. Yesterday, U.S. Attorney from the Southern District of New York indicted a man named Gal Luft for violating the Foreign Agents Registration Act by working without registration for a company called CEMC China Energy. Uh, the president's son and brother worked at the same firm without registration. I've not seen that and can't comment on it. Yeah. Well, over at MSNBC, anchor Nicole Wallace cast doubt on Republicans' case against the so-called Biden crime family. Let's watch. David Jolly, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say something. And I, I, I invite um, anyone on the right that watches this show regularly to prove me wrong. I don't think any Republican ingesting truth serum actually believes that there's been any political interference by Merrick Garland or his deputies in the Hunter Biden cases. Hmm. That's a big claim. Yeah, I don't think that's true at all. Um, I, I think there is, I think it's not um, proven one way or the other whether there was interference from Merrick Garland. Um, there have certainly been people, there have been whistleblowers who've made this claim uh, that if not Garland himself, the office, the people under him, uh, didn't want to bring charges in these other municipalities. Now, it, it is there's conflicting mm -hmm. accounts and reporting here, and David Weiss himself has not so far given any indication that he was really running up against Merrick Garland, you know, trying to put a kibosh on this investigation. So I understand why people, if people are not yet persuaded that it is the case that Merrick Garland um, did something nefarious, but I don't. I don't know that there's no there there. Well, so well, first of all, I think either. that <laughs> something nefarious and having some bias in the way that mm -hmm. these cases are prosecuted are kind of two different things. There is a thing called prosecutorial discretion. You don't have to like it, but that is the reality. And the same way that we can reflect on the Trump era and ask ourselves, would Jared Kushner's dad have been pardoned if he wasn't the father of? Um, you know, the grandfather of Donald Trump's ch grandchildren, then I think we all acknowledge that the answer is no. He made a decision. He influenced the way that the pardoning process, that that person's um, uh, sentence was going to be carried out. And similarly, there is going to be prosecutorial discretion with respect to which charges are brought against Joe Bi uh, Hunter Biden and those kinds of things. Now, whether or not you think that there has been a soft handling of Hunter Biden that is undermining justice, drawing the contrast between how Hunter Biden is treated versus other people who have been victims of Biden's own, Joe Biden's own draconian drug legislation. I think that these are all fair points to point out and that there's hypocrisy all over the place. And my, from a personal perspective, it seems very unlikely to me that if you have all the power that the president of the United States has, you wouldn't try to 
grease the runway for your son in some way, even if it's minor, right? That being said, I also think that the focus on Hunter Biden and the effort to have a maximalist perspective to what he has to, you know, his accountability in this criminal matter is also politicized by the right. And the interest in him is, has to do with the fact that he's Joe Biden's son at the same time. So at the same time, I, I think it's highly unlikely that there could be no politicization in this context. I also think it should be put in the broader context of the fact that we've seen this basically from every powerful person who has the ability to influence the justice system since time immemorial. I mean, I don't think that, I, I'm not sure people would be satisfied with that answer. Um, I think people know and understand that the president's ability to pardon people, yes, there's favoritism at play there. He has wide discretion to do so. That's a power that every president of both parties has exercised. I think most people would view that as fundamentally different from internal manipulations, if they were present here, to guide the investigation. Oh, it is in, fundamentally in different. It's just an analogy to point out that when people can do, they do protect their own. And oh. that's why I'm skeptical of this idea that the Biden administration saying, I've had absolutely no effect here, it seems deeply implausible. That's all I'm trying to say, that it's deeply mm -hmm. implausible. At the same time, I, the, the Republicans have to find evidence of something concrete that they can take to the public and say, this is, an, this is evidence of uh, hypocrisy and a miscarriage of justice. And despite mm -hmm. having the House now and working very hard to uncover such evidence, they haven't done so. Now, that could be suggestive of the Biden administration's uh, competence at covering their tracks, or it could be evidence of the fact that while there's a little bit of a hand on the scale, there isn't anything especially substantive. And so we'll see. They've they've had the House for only about you know a little, little less than a year now. Um, but it, I think at a certain point, we talked about this yesterday, it will become a bit of a boy who cried wolf situation if they're not able to land some harder evidence. What about uh, these reports now, you know, reaching the mainstream that um, that U.S. law enforcement was working with social media companies to um, de-verify or censor critics of uh, of the you know bipartisan consensus on Ukraine? This is obviously something that, if you're watching this show, you know all about because we've had on Lee Fong and Aaron Mate and Ty and Schellenberger, et cetera, to talk about how pervasive and wrong this is. Uh, of course, you know, when they do it, they're ignored by the mainstream and the establishment. Uh, but now it, this is kind of, you know, hitting the attention of the mainstream that, oh, wow, yeah, there was some of this going on, yeah. uh, which is, I mean, totally, totally outrageous that a foreign government is exercising censorship powers over uh, U.S. social media companies and over Americans, despite the existence of the First Amendment. Yeah, well, it's it's really such a shame. It really points to how important having transparency at uh, companies like Twitter really was or and continues to be, and why it's so disappointing that someone like Elon Musk would choose to shut down the Twitter files over this interpersonal dispute with Matt Taibbi. They were ultimately only able to access and process a very small fraction of all of the documents that, of course, exist since you know the founding of Twitter, 2009 or whenever that was. But also going forward, we have no assurances about what Twitter is currently doing, other than um, Elon Musk's periodic admissions on the app that he, for example, is willing to censor on behalf of uh, Modi in India and things like that, which is not especially reassuring to people who thought that he would take a harder stance against um, authoritarian governments influencing the app, not a softer one than Jack. Even Jack pointed out that he had stood up to Modi more than Elon Musk has done, even though Jack is broadly supportive of Elon Musk and, and the way he's running the app. But who is 
they were not standing up to the Ukrainian officials, right? That's what we're talking about now. Yeah. So we don't know what Twitter's doing, is my point. And that the reporting that Li Fang and others have done is so important. And if we want the public to continue to pay attention in this particular issue, there's going to have to be a push not just to have the government accountable when they have been fingered in this way by the Twitter files, but to continue to have some kind of reassurances that there will be more disclosures going forward. Uh, because Twitter and these other kinds of apps aren't going anywhere. This is something that uh, RFK Jr. raised recently in an interview uh, talking about Section 230 and whether or not some of those protections should be contingent on transparency from figures like Elon Musk going forward, not just revealing what the old administration had done at Twitter, but also holding oneself accountable so that all of us that continue to be users on that app and to find it so valuable and important know that we aren't continually being censored or certain viewpoints aren't being censored uh, the way that has, has been done in the no, past. I'm, I'm, I'm getting to the point where I obviously I would love to see more transparency, more disclosure, et cetera, but I've done and seen enough now, and now I want the people who made these demands fired. I want them dealt with. I want these agencies to stop having these practices. I want wholesale reform of the FBI and the State Department and Homeland Security and and the CDC and everyone else who you meet and, and the White House Communications Office everyone who made it their business to just sit around flagging jokes and content they didn't like for Twitter moderators. Like, it's, yeah, it's totally, totally irresponsible. It's very much contrary to the spirit of the First Amendment, and there needs to be a wholesale reform of government's approach to social media companies, yeah, I, I in my think view. That, I think that that's fair that some reforms need to be put in place, but how will we know if those reforms have worked, if there's not some accountability and transparency that's built into the process. And I think that's that's what was so interesting about what RFK Jr. was pointing to in that interview, that there has to be um, a mechanism in place that continues to reveal what kind of requests the government is making so they can't just say, oh, yes, we're reformed. You know, because these are institutional. There's a lot of right. I, yeah, I, I think every email uh, a government um, agent sends to a social media company should be like, automatically posted somewhere yeah. for people to and, review. And the, and the big story is, it's worth noting, not only did we only get a very small fraction of documents to review in the consoles of the Twitter files, but the majority of censorship, the majority of kind of the timeline tinkering that affects what we see is algorithmic in nature. And there was nothing, as far as I understand it, in the Twitter files that started to interrogate how the algorithms are structured to be biased for or against certain kinds of content. So we really care about whether or not these sites are leaning one way or the other or against these bipartisan consensus issues, like the fact that most most Americans are against you know, US imperialism, for instance. Um, then we're going to have to figure out a way to get the social media companies to be a little bit more transparent about the algorithmic choices that are being made as well. All right. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Former Fox News host Tucker Carlson interviewed Andrew Tate on his Twitter show yesterday. Andrew Tate obviously is a man who has been charged, accused of rape and human trafficking. Let's take a listen to how Tate responded to Carlson's questions about The Matrix. Good question. I guess some Americans call it the deep state, but I like to look at it in a more global way. When I say The Matrix, I think there are certain agendas which are being pushed. I think the media machine and the judicial systems of the world work together hand in hand. I think the goal is to control people's minds to a point where they don't discuss anything that's important. The reason I use the matrix 
is because I've watched that movie a few times and it has so many similarities to the... Have you seen the movie? No. You've never seen the movie The Matrix? No, I, I don't Tucker. watch any movies. <laughs> Tucker. I don't want to talk about it on camera. No, I'm very um, dyslexic and it's hard for me to watch video. Got honestly. it. Honestly. Understood. But there's so many similarities and the basic premise is that humans' minds are controlled and put inside of a false reality so that their body heat can be manifested for the machines. And I don't think it's much different to reality. Our minds are controlled, we're put in a false version of reality, we're told things aren't true, we're arguing over things that don't matter, we're observing a false version of events, and the goal of it is just to distract us long enough for our bodies to be used for the machines, the soulless. Tate also weighed in on the war in Ukraine. I, up until this point, never really commented too heavily on polit politics. Yes. But I understand very well, I like to believe what's happening with Ukraine and Russia. And what I will say to the people who are watching this at home is that if you are naive enough to believe that there are good guys and bad guys in wars, and it's as simple as good and bad, and that the bad guys are crazy, and the good guys want freedom, then you need to do a little bit more investigation into what's really happening. And when you look at the vested interest of any country or any person. Can I, can I just ask you to pause and just comment? That's the truest thing, what you just said. That is the, and anyone who doesn't understand that should shut the fuck up. <laughs> and I mean it, having seen war, anyone who's telling you that it's Churchill versus Hitler yep. is an idiot. Some conservatives have condemned Carlson's two and a half hour long interview with the alleged sex trafficker. One Twitter user tweeted, Tate is charged in Romania with rape, human trafficking, and forming an organized crime group to sexually exploit women. Are you an Andrew Tate right-winger right or sound, a sound of freedom right-winger? You can't really be both. Another wrote, Tucker devotes his first lengthy interview to a sex trafficking woman abusing fraud, but some have supported the interview. Former New York City Police Commissioner Bernie Couric tweeted, free at... Uh, Cobrate, uh, where's at State Department and at Secretary Blinken, how do you sit back and allow a U.S. citizen to be unlawfully detained in a foreign country, especially when that country is a close ally? Joe Rogan and at Patrick Bet David and Twitter CEO, um, sorry, he added those other people. Also, Twitter CEO Elon Musk said, interesting interview with uh, Andrew Tate and uh, retweeted it. The episode received more than 25 million views and 200,000 likes yesterday, according to Mediaite. It now has 45 million views. So the comparison that was being made there to Sound of Freedom, so this is a new film. Um, Jim Caviezel is in it um, about sex trafficking, and it, it's, you know, one of those movies that's like, Conservatives really like it, but it hasn't gotten a wide distribution. And you know, they're making kind of an implicit argument that, like, well, why is the mainstream media not, you know, interested in this movie that had, that is about the horrors of sex trafficking? So that conservative Eric Erickson was saying, you know, at this time where conservatives are celebrating the success of this movie, even though the mainstream's ignoring it, um, why would you, you know, if you're saying you're a conservative? Tucker Carlson, but you're interviewing someone accused of sex trafficking that's very, like, mixed messaging. I will say, and, and so we, we didn't play clips of him addressing, of Tate specifically addressing those accusations. The first 24, I don't know how many minutes, is um, Andrew Tate going over the accusations against him and, you know, why he says he's completely innocent um, and all that. So it wasn't, you know, just him being interviewed for his, like, political opinions or his philosophy or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the concern that some people had 
So, so for one, for one, I would say I don't agree with the tweets that we read that suggest that he should not be interviewed. He's that, a very interesting person who millions of people are getting some kind of. Yeah. Well. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that I don't believe in just deplatforming people that you disagree with or saying that it's mm -hmm. a, it's irresponsible to interview people even when they've been accused of doing very bad things. What I do wonder is if the line of inquiry that he was presented with in this interview was really geared toward getting at the bottom of not just the legal charges that have been uh, levied against him, which, as far as I could tell, are as yet a little on the vague side and unsubstantiated. I think there's some legitimacy the to, yeah, that, right. um, the way I, that yes, Andrew Tate was pushing back in the interview. For we sure. haven't been told very much about the substance of those charges. And I do think that there is an interesting like legal legitimacy credibility question about specifically the sex trafficking charges. Very much so. However, the irony is that because he is now facing these charges, the argument is now, and this came up in the interview, the argument is now, Andrew Tate is being persecuted like Julian Assange and that we should rally behind him because he deserves our support. And I think that you can both believe, and I don't know that this is true, but it might turn out to be the case that the legal charges are, are poorly founded. And Andrew Tate, by his own admission, has engaged in a kind of behavior that, from a moral perspective, seems pretty reprehensible. And it didn't seem like that aspect of it was engaged with as much as sure. people would have liked. Oh, I thought we were going to argue about this. I basically agree with everything you just said. Um, I, I have a high degree of, from having seen in, in Reason Magazine, where I also write for, has done a lot of reporting on how, even in the US, sex trafficking charges, accusations by law enforcement have been used to basically jail people for engaging in consensual prostitution. So this is, this is Romania, um, not to you know, besmirch the Romanian justice officials department. Um, I would have probably even more questions about how they apply those charges. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing, and maybe it's all true, but we haven't been presented with a lot of evidence of actually women being, like, held against their will. Uh, there's been a, a contrary, there's been reporting on both sides of that. Um, maybe he is appropriating their wealth um, by, ha you know, having them do these webcams or these OnlyFans or TikTok or whatever it is, not sharing the money. I, like, I, I think... So let's talk a little specifically been... about, about what he, Andrew Tate, sure. has admitted to, because I do think there's a way that the news can start yada, yada, yadaing this. And most normal... The average person sure. doesn't know anything about Andrew right. Tate. But they didn't. the authorities didn't go in and liberate like women who were chained to radiators in his basement or no. something. That is not so the case. What Andrew Tate has described about himself in many interviews mm -hmm. is that he used something called the sweetheart method. He self-describes. He describes it as that, and that's also what the criminal justice community— He said in this community, interview with Tucker Carlson. Yeah, which is where you represent to women that you are romantically involved with them, like you have a real relationship with them, because the person mm -hmm. who, in his words, is sleeping, having a sexual relationship with a woman is going to be the one they listen to the most, that you're going to be primary in their mind, and they will defer to you more than any other influence in their lives. And so you establish these relationships with multiple women, and you convince them to go on the webcams and— make money through webcam sex right. work. 
uh, he says that you can then centralize the conversations with men. So they're on camera, but they can't possibly have independent conversations with as many men as you can if you outsource that to Andrew Tate. So Andrew Tate or others are the ones that are actually having the conversations with the men, which allows you to scale up. And that then he goes on to say that you are able to extract a lot of wealth from them from the work that they are doing simply because you're treating them like a factory. But moreover, extract even more wealth by lying to them about, about the fact that, uh, lying to them saying that they're paying money into taxes when in fact you are taking that money, avoiding paying taxes and using Bitcoin basically to avoid your tax obligations. Now, he has not currently been charged with any tax crimes, but there have been some legal experts who have opined about whether or not that is a more mm-hmm. solid claim against him since he's made those admissions on on videos, videos which he's now taken down, but which exist on the internet. So so that's, that's the claim. Sure. And it's a little ironic. He made reference to the matrix and described the way that in that movie, bodies were in a machine being harvested. You know, hum- humanity was being, basically our energy was being harvested right. for the benefit of robots. Which is the stupidest thing about that movie because All right, Robbie, more but if I could just finish this, cre- okay, the, the sci-fi is not, the, I mean, this is important stuff here. The, 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 the point, the irony is that he's quite literally describing what he's done with all of these women set up in all of these rooms in front of cameras where he has bra- bragged repeatedly, constantly about extracting their capital, extracting resources from them, um, harvesting their benefit in the exact same way that he's being he's describing in the Matrix, and describing them specifically as um, uh, assets. He says in this video, when you're going to go start a business, you have to consider what your assets are. Do you have a house? Do you have money put away? Do you have a skill? And he says that he realized that his ability to get women, he uses more vulgar language than I'm using, but his ability to attract attractive women was the asset that he decided he wanted to exploit to earn a lot of money, and he has done so successfully. Whether or not that is illegal, I think many people would argue that it is immoral and are questioning why... Tucker Carlson maybe didn't press harder on the morality of his actions, even if he technically is being uh, unfairly persecuted, potentially, by the criminal justice system. Sure, but that's a—I mean, that's a big technical—you know, he described being in jail for 90 days, the the conditions—I found that part of the interview uh, interesting, frankly. Right. I agree. I don't understand why people are treating this person, Andrew Tate, like some sage, like some very wise person for whom you should—you should take— business advice or relationship advice or those kinds of things he seems very scammy and very morally objectionable even the things that he said um uh again he see it seems hypocritical also he you know he kind of condemns um promiscuous women or promiscuity among women but he is obviously very promiscuous and he has set up a like his business was was facilitating women sexualizing themselves. So it just seems very hypocritical, which, again, I don't object to. I, and I, I think if this business is above board and people are getting the money they're, they're owed, you know, whatever. That's your business. Um, that, yeah, that is the interesting legal question. Um, but, I, but they've gone after him for sex trafficking, and I, and I, I am decently skeptical of that. So at, at the same time, I think he's worth interviewing. Um, I, I think probably... You know, delving into the hypocrisies of his professed philosophy would have been interesting. Yeah. That didn't quite happen. But I, but especially again, they from are conservatives who kind of 
I mean, the, right. the contrast between conservatives wanting more attention on this movie that's anti-groomer and has kind of these more traditional conservative values right. that's and rallying behind Andrew Tate, I mean, I... I, I'm, I'm not for like the, the pat conservative values that, generally speaking, historically conservatives have been behind. Mm -hmm. But the hypocrisy is a little bit to, to get hard to, to unravel here. And I think that you are able to sidestep that hypocrisy by basically not asking the guy questions or, or focusing on the legal aspects of this scenario as opposed to the substance. Well, sure, but I, I think it's fine to interview him about the legal aspects of right, this case because right. they're very interesting. And I but but remember, this man was famous for some bad behavior long before he was arrested last year. He was kicked off Big Brother for misogynistic, violence against women style well, comments. You don't go to prison for being kicked off. No, Big but the, the, you're doing exactly what I'm. I have a problem with, which is we now are, it's impossible for us to talk about all these horrible things he's said and done because the reaction is, well, he shouldn't go to prison for that. I grant that. I grant that. But there is, the, the reason this man is even famous is because parents, a lot of parents had concerns that he was uh, amplifying an ideology that advocates for violence against women, sexual exploitation of women. Nobody can argue against that. He's very proud of his record on those things. So are we, is there any space left? Is this, if this, if the result of this criminal prosecution is that Andrew Tate never gets, you know, criminally held criminally liable for any of his behaviors, but it has made him into a martyr and we are no longer able to have a substantive conversation about whether it's right and good to encourage young men to have set up farms of sexually exploited young women. He also says that it's better to get them as young as possible because you have but more I mean, control who's, over them. Who, who's, then is this a benefit? Who's cre the, the martyrdom system is being created by a, by a sketchy legal prosecution, yeah, thing, right? I, yes. But I think that I, I have a lot of confidence that we're smart enough to walk and talk at the same time and that you can acknowledge, or we well, don't sure, know. That's what I, we're doing. I don't, I don't, I personally don't know what's going to happen with the legal case. It's very, there's been very little revealed substantively about the charges. I, I tried to find some analysis last night. There was mm -hmm. not a lot forthcoming. But even if you put that to the side, since we don't know a lot about that, I right. do think that should be opening up space to talk about the, what we do know about Andrew Tate and the opposite is happening. And it's allowing people to, Valorize someone who I think should not be valorized. I don't think he should be valorized. I'm not valorizing him at all. I don't. I I'm absolutely don't think he should be valorized. Um, but I don't. The way he he's been reported on and just like I was trying to track down some of the primary. So what are the primary accusations? Where where are the, who are the people you know who are actually saying he did this? He wronged me in this way. Um, it's actually hard to find because it's in Romanian. It's in it's with Romanian. Sources the like the reports on him from B, from the BBC are about um, bad relationships he had with women from his time in England. That again, they they could be true. They describe bad behavior. They could also be kind of cashing in at the moment where he's facing some kind of other prosecution. They don't have to do with the sex trafficking. So it's again, it's hard to get to the bottom of. I've not been overly impressed with how um, how the news has covered this going. How U.S. and English-speaking news has covered it. Yeah. So. I mean, he, the Big Brother incident was that he was ejected from that reality show house over a video of him hitting a woman with a belt. And a second video emerged shortly thereafter in which he was shown telling a woman to count the bruises he apparently caused to her. Yeah. Should not—scumbag should not be valorized. But, again, he's being charged with something that we'll see if they can prove it. Well, I'm, I, for one, I'm really glad to hear his insights on the Ukraine-Russia conflict. <laughs> what did you, well, did you disagree with his insights on the I don't, I don't, I, I have struggled to think about a human being whose opinion on that particular subject I value less. 
But that's a subjective personal view. We'll have my rising for you right after this. In the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic Hearing on Proximal Origins that took place yesterday, Representative Jim Jordan questioned witness Dr. Christian Anderson, one of the authors of the Proximal Origin paper, on the possibility that COVID came from a lab leak. Let's watch. You, don't, you guys don't know whether they were doing gain-of-function research or not. You think they weren't. I think they were. You think they weren't. But regardless of that, what they were doing there, what the, the, the biosafety level at that lab wasn't up to the code it should have been for the research they were doing. Uh, doing this type of research at BSL-2 using bat coronaviruses is commonly done at BSL-2. The lab work, or the animal work, I should say, is done in BSL-3. Again, this is all what available. What level lab would you want? If you're doing the research, Dr. Anderson or Dr. Gary, what level lab, uh, what level would you want, two or three? This would, again, typically be, con this would typically be approved at biosafety level two. However, as I said from the beginning, is that I believe, especially given everything we know, based on how many of these coronaviruses we have, that this kind of work should in future, via international regulations, be done at BSL-3. Should be done at a higher level than it was done there. U.S. Right to Know reporter Emily Kopp tweeted this question that was posed to Anderson and Dr. Robert Gary, another author of the paper. Did you advise the intelligence community on their assessment of COVID's origins? Gary and Anderson both said yes, the FBI and CIA. Anderson also responded to allegations about Dr. Fauci's connection to the proximal origins paper. The claim that Dr. Fauci prompted the drafting of proximal origin to disprove the lab leak is not true. In an email to the journal Nature, I stated, prompted by Jeremy Farrar, Tony Fauci, and Francis Collins, we have been working through much of the primarily genetic data to provide agnostic and scientifically informed hypotheses around the origin of the virus. There was no prompting to disprove or dismiss a potential lab leak. In fact, when I outlined my initial hypothesis about a potentially engineered virus, Dr. Fauci told me, and I'm paraphrasing here, if you think this virus came from a lab, you should write a scientific paper about it. This is textbook science in action. Some have alleged that I have received a federal grant in exchange for the conclusions made in our proximal origin paper. There is no connection between the grant and the paper. Funding decisions on the grant were made before the pandemic, months before the February 1 conference call. Molecular biologist and scientific advisor at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, Alina Chan, joins us now to weigh in. Welcome, Alina. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, tell, take us through what you believe the biggest kind of admissions or bits of new information coming out of this hearing were yesterday. So this hearing did not tell us about the evidence that has led the uh, FBI and the Department of Energy to assess that a lab origin is more likely than a natural origin. But it did show us that this group of experts uh, were not very transparent in how they came to publish a, a very prominent letter dismissing all lab-based scenarios. So they acknowledged during the hearing, they were questioned and forced to acknowledge that, yes, that lab was working with dangerous viruses and low biosafety. Uh, that they did not have access to the experiments or types of viruses being worked with in that lab, and yet they pushed out a letter claiming that they can dismiss lab, uh, lab origins based on their op 
their own professional opinion. So based on not any facts or evidence that they had access to, but based on their own opinions. One thing that was really surprising to me was that this group of influential scientists included uh, funders of the Wuhan Institute and in their query of whether the virus had escaped from that, did not look within their own records, did not do their own searching to see whether they had progress reports or, or proposals from the EcoHealth Alliance and the WIF to see whether they might have had such a virus in their collection. Uh, I believe yesterday as well we saw a report uh, being uh, produced uh, discussing uh, you know, by the House uh, discussing the, the topic of proximal origins and we saw some messages that maybe maybe have been out there but I hadn't seen slack messages among these scientists uh, you know discussing almost reasons to um, root against a lab leak explanation because then there will be more scrutiny on grant making in in the future you know can you speak to that aspect of it? So we've seen a lot of these emails and Slack messages uh, acquired by the Select Subcommittee on the Origins. What they show is that even all the way till mid-February, these uh, authors of Proximal Origin, they knew that they could not distinguish between an accidental lab escape and a natural uh, virus jumping from an animal to a human in the market. But by the time they put out their letter, they, they had put in such a forceful statement saying that it's, it's not plausible that this virus came from a lab. And, and this, this contradicts all of their private thoughts. And, and we see from their private exchanges that they were very worried about a, a shit show, in their own words, that would, uh, that would happen if, if anyone serious dared to accuse the Chinese of even an accidental lab escape. So we, we can see that in their minds, it wasn't just the scientific evidence they were thinking about that. They were thinking a lot about what would happen if scientists were to come on and say, this might have come from a lab, we can't tell. It also seems like there's some sensitivity in protecting their ability to continue to do gain-of-function research, the colloquy we listened to, where there was an unwillingness to kind of engage in the question of whether or not the research that was being conducted there was, in fact, gain-of-function research or some other research, which is obviously potentially dangerous enough or not done at a safety level that could protect the public from what we've been dealing with for the, for the last three years. Can you weigh in on what this disagreement is about? What does constitute gain-of-function research, and in your professional opinion, what was going on in those labs? So we see from even their private Slack exchanges that these scientists were worried about these dangerous and risky virus experiments. They said it only takes one mistake for a virus to leak and cause outbreaks in people. And, but they found themselves in this difficult position of, of having talked in private to, to funders of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, to uh, proponents of this gain-of-function research who were very aggressively shutting down any notion of a lab origin. And so we, we see that the, the public and private thoughts were in conflict. And, and now the question is really, is has the science changed at all? Has the science changed and have they been validated? And the answer is no. Actually, up to today, there's still no way to tell whether the virus came from a lab or from nature. So what I hope to see from, from this step on is future hearings dealing with more of the non-public evidence that has been gathered by the US government. So we heard at a hearing that there is non-public evidence that needs to be looked at. And I, I hope that that will be the next step. 
Absolutely. That's what I thought, I expected and hoped, maybe naively, that we were getting um, you know, a few weeks ago when the, 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 uh, the, the, the law you know, uh, obligating de declassification and explanation of what the government has that was bipartisan, signed by Biden. There was a deadline to release it. And instead, all we got was like another report, again, summarizing evidence we already know without explaining what caused uh, the FBI and energy to make a different conclusion than other agencies. And I, I have to think, and I'm really curious for your opinion on this, you know, something that, that would, that points, that has been um, reported by the Wall Street Journal and other places that points to lab leak origin is those scientists getting sick with a COVID-like illness, um, uh, you know, er much earlier than the, uh, the wet market, et cetera, that one of those scientists has publicly denied that he got sick now. But if we have, if the U.S. government has intelligence or, or, or evidence that the Chinese government had this intelligence, obviously that would be such a significant, um, uh, you know, tipping the scales toward lab leak. Do you think, you know, that information, that is something the U.S. government does know that they haven't uh, disclosed yet? Is, is, that, is that possibly what had led some of the agencies to make a different call? Based on what I have heard from others privately, I, I do think that those names are accurate. So I, I know that two of the three scientists have, have put up public denials and, and in fact claim that they never worked with live viruses, they're just the computer folks. But, <laughs> but this is not true. If you go through the literature, you can tell that these scientists were the ones directly handling these live viruses, very similar to the pandemic virus. And so I, I hope that the intel agency can can declassify more information and, and to engender more trust from the public in them. Because what we're seeing now is that the FBI and DOE have both assessed a lab origin uh, more likely than not. They they both have the strongest scientific expertise amongst all the scientific uh, all the intel agencies. So what exactly is the evidence that has led them to this conclusion? And and I I believe that quite a few key pieces of evidence are still not public, still not declassified. Well, it is interesting that that witness, um, Anderson, says that he was part of the group that advised the FBI on what the origin was. And of course, the FBI uh, came out saying that it was more likely than not that it was lab leak. Uh, you know, what, what, do you, what do you make? Do, uh, we were all ho hoping, as Robbie pointed out, to get more insight into what made those government agencies come to that particular conclusion. But what do you make of the fact that there's this person here who's clearly implicated in a letter going the other direction, saying that it was uh, natural origin, giving advice to an agency that ultimately chose to weigh in in the other, in the other way? So I think there needs to be some clarification here in, in terms of what they mean by whether they advised that agency. So some of these agencies did a lot of interviews, and I believe that is what happened for, for uh, Bob Gary and for Christine Anderson, is that they were interviewed, but they were not paid consultants. So they were not you know, paid to advise these uh, agencies. So what that means is that these agencies spoke at length to these scientists, interviewed them, tried to understand their, their arguments and what evidence uh, they based their interpretations on and saw all of that and still determined scientifically that this was not pointing towards a natural origin. So I think that the, the lack of the, the classification and, and the kind of wording that Intel agency uses, like no evidence, is always erring on the side of caution. So if this, if, even if they have searched but uh, have met obstacles, they, they don't tell you that. They just say that we haven't found evidence, but it doesn't mean that there is no actual evidence to be found. So I, I think it, it is worth clarifying that the available evidence is either missing or 
what what is known doesn't str strongly point towards a natural origin. We also um, were talking a little bit yesterday as the hearing was ongoing about a kind of viral clip of Marjorie Taylor Greene weighing in uh, at the hearing. There was a lot of pushback, arguments that there was misinformation in the content of what she said. Uh, can you can you weigh in on Marjorie Taylor Greene's characterization of what happened in the hearing? I think I think that that's certainly some errors in in uh, Greene's. Uh, speech. And, and th that's why I wish that more other scientists had been brought in to sort of balance out the proximal origin authors, to sort of counter them and point out where they've made missteps or, or where they are wrong in their statements. Um, so from what I gather, her, her stance was that it's troubling that a bioweapons general <laughs> was called in to, to head the, the Wuhan Institute in, during the crisis and that there were very closely related viruses being worked with in the lab there, and that, and that members of the IC do assess a lab origin as more likely. So I also think that these are, these are notable, but again, it's difficult to, to say that this definitely points towards a lab origin. So what I think needs to be done now is doing a very systematic search within the US for communications, documents, research proposals, reports that could point us towards the origin of COVID-19. They could tell us about whether dangerous experiments had been done in Wuhan. Mm. Alina Chan, thank you so much for joining us to discuss the subject. We really appreciate it. Thanks again. A new poll shows former President Donald Trump is beating Governor Ron DeSantis by double digits in DeSantis' home state of Florida. According to Florida Atlantic University Main Street Polcom Lab's latest study, if the GOP presidential primary were today, 50.3% of Floridians would support Donald Trump versus 30.2% who would go for DeSantis. Despite the lashing DeSantis is taking in the polls, the Florida governor maintained he could still win the primary despite being steamrolled by Trump in the Real Clear Politics average. Here he is on radio show Wisconsin right now making his point. Let's listen. This is a state-by-state -state process. There's not a national poll. There's not a national primary. I know the media trots out these polls. A lot of them, you know, are not necessarily, you know, very well-done polls. But it doesn't even matter. We don't have a national primary. We're going to have Iowa. We're going to have New Hampshire. We're going to have South Carolina. Um, and we're the only candidate. There's two candidates that can win the nomination, Trump and me. Uh, and I would say that I'm the only one that could win both the nomination and the general election. I mean, that's interesting. It's not clear to me that those state polls of the earlier states in the primary process are going to help Ron DeSantis in the way that he thinks for two reasons. One, some of those states Donald Trump is still incredibly popular in, and Ron DeSantis is even less well-known and less popular than he is in his home state of mm -hmm. Florida. Secondly, Donald Trump didn't need to win Iowa back in 2016 to go on and win the nomination. So I think that he is a unique candidate in some respects. His broader appeal to a base outside of any of these particular states means that he can weather the slings and arrows of some early bad contest better than someone like Ron DeSantis, who's very quickly going to have the media coalesce around he's a loser if he does, in fact, lose those early states. It's similar to Joe Biden, who was able to lose the first three primary states in the 2020 primary, mm -hmm. win big in South Carolina, and have the media support. Yeah, I think doing—drop my pen here—doing <laughs> uh, poorly in the early states would uh, be the death knell for the DeSantis campaign, really counting on a very strong showing in those early states. You know, if he does do well, um, there's going to be some coalescing around him as the 
as, I mean, he already is the only alternative to Trump. He's, what he said there was accurate. It's Trump or him. Um, and he's making his case that it could be him, and then it, and it should be, because he, he'd be more likely to win the general, which, you know, you can debate that. Um, if he does well in the early states, they'll be coalescing around him. Um, maybe, you know, put, right now, the like, conservative media, obviously, they're boosting him if they don't, if they're not explicitly Trump. But there's, there's some, sometimes there'll be some backing off, you know, this perception that he's doing missteps, even though, honestly, his overall poll numbers with respect to Trump, like I was checking, they haven't actually changed all that much over a long period of time. They're, you know, that, that 20 percent or so number, you know, it's gone up a little bit, it's come down a little bit as Trump has gotten more attention. Um, honestly, things haven't changed that dramatically and probably won't until some of these states vote. If he does well, has a good showing, that, you know, then the idea is he's going to build on this momentum and then you would see this gap close in other states. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that's the theory of his campaign. Yeah, well, I think it what could happen. some people are reading into with the polls is there, there was this expectation that the Trump indictments were going to hurt him mm -hmm. and they didn't. No. And then there's also— Not with the Republican primary voters. Right. And then there's this, this, this Florida poll in, in particular seems damning because Ron DeSantis has been popular in Florida and Floridians mm -hmm. like him. And when you hear narrative, when you hear um, interviews with folks from Florida who are being asked about the choice between those two candidates, they often will say things like, I love DeSantis as my governor, but I think that Trump would be a better president. They're, they're two Florida men battling it out in that state. And, you know, right. you, can, you can take that in both ways. You can say, well, the Florida numbers aren't so suggestive of what's happening nationally because people in Florida also really especially love Donald Trump who hail, you know, has Mar-a-Lago and has a home base in Florida. Sure. Or you can say, well, if even the people in DeSantis' own state are not willing to choose him as the number one, then his chances are Right. Why it's so damaging for him is that a part of the argument he can make of why, why he's behind in the polls in various places is name recognition. Trump has just so universal name recognition. There's still a lot of people even a lot of Republicans don't know who Ron DeSantis is. Uh, that's hard to imagine, but people don't pay as close attention. But harder to make that case in the state of Florida, where obviously he is very well known. He is the governor. Yeah. So that's why that's not a, a great result. I mean, for him. you also mentioned a few minutes ago uh, this idea that it's debatable which of those two men will have better odds against uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Interestingly, that electability question is one that very much drives voters. So it might be worth just interrogating that a little bit. I mean, the part of the pitch that Ron DeSantis was expected to have mm -hmm. was that because he was more reasonable, because he was more kind of establishment friendly, because he didn't um, do as many own goals as Donald Trump, didn't engage in the, the messiness and the criminality and the awkwardness that Donald Trump sometimes brings to the table, that he would be able to carry the torch of Trumpism more efficiently, right. basically, and I and therefore have a better chance against um, Joe Biden, right? Yes. I don't know if he has landed that precisely because of his hardcore pivot to these woke issues, and I wonder if there's a tacit understanding or presumption at the very least that. There's a world where Ron DeSantis is able to make a strong case against Joe Biden, but Don, uh, Ron, Ron DeSantis standing on stage saying we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make woke die and we're gonna make the war He's on not wokeism. Say that on stage against Joe Biden. Versus He's saying Joe Biden. that now to win the primary. Right, but people are making electability decisions in the primary, whether not you want to believe that to be the case. In in the Demo in the Democratic primary in 2020, we very much understood that the thing that was keeping Joe Biden at the head of the race 
and was really damaging to Bernie Sanders was this electability question. And people hit Bernie with, but you're a socialist, and in the general, people aren't going to like that. And, you know, will Americans vote for a socialist? I mean, every newspaper sure. headline sure, in sure, America. Sure. And he had to figure out how to make that case. It wasn't, I don't like Bernie. It was, well, will someone else vote for Bernie? And if people are asking themselves that question about Ron DeSantis now when he's being dogged by negative press about how he's, like, weird, he's kind of awkward, he's not but good he with people. To, he, he can point to not every poll, but most of the polls have shown him doing a little bit better against Biden than Donald Trump. There have been contrary examples, too, but most of them show, like, a real close race between whoever, yeah. between Biden and whoever it is, and DeSantis doing a little bit better. The polls in show that Bernie Sanders did better than Joe Biden against Donald Trump, and the polls in I'm not, 20... I'm not questioning no, no. that. Okay, I'm I, not saying that you are. Yeah. And the polls in 2016 show that Bernie Sanders did enormously yeah. better against Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, but that's not what the media told the public, and I think the public perception sure. still carried well, the media. Well, in 2016, the media was just wrong about that. I, I, I think it's obvious that... Bernie Sanders would have done better against Trump than Hillary Clinton. I think it's more ambiguous in 2020. Yeah, I don't um, know. I think it's pretty clear-cut for 2016, because he would have just—Bernie would have just retained some of the voters that Hillary lost in Michigan. Like, all the other states would have been the same. And then Michigan and Pennsylvania, where—and um, and oh, where I Trump narrowly pulled away. You don't know about— um uh, DeSantis and Trump. Oh, I, yeah, I'm not yeah. trying to relitigate re those yeah. those Democratic primaries. I'm just saying I think that there's some genuine ambiguity sure. about what would happen there. But that hurts DeSantis more than it hurts Trump because Trump pitch Trump's pitch was never about like I'm the reasonable insider guy that can do the job. That's De that's more DeSantis's lane. And if DeSantis is just going to be Trump light and also have his own kind of baggage where he's just not especially likable to the public, then he's going to continue struggling in this way. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, DeSantis' pitches, he gets all the same states Trump won, and Georgia, which has a popular Republican governor, and Arizona, which had a popular Republican governor until Trump handpicked um, a lunatic, <laughs> uh, are states that stay for Republicans. I mean, that, that's I, the not, issue. Ron DeSantis yeah. is not a Brian Kemp. You know, he could know. have been a Brian Kemp. There was a lane for him to be a sort of Brian Kemp type. And I'm not even saying that he that would have been the advantage, advantageous way to go, because there are some deficits to be being perceived as kind of an establishment go-along. But it's I'm 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 running it through my brain. I don't really know that someone like Ron uh, Ron DeSantis fares better in Georgia. I guess we'll see some polls at some point. Fares better in Georgia than a, mm -hmm. a Donald Trump because Ron DeSantis has stripped himself of the ability to claim that he is reasonable and not terminally online and not ungovernable when he does things like promote this wild, homophobic and simultaneously homoerotic video that he put out where he's trying to accuse Donald Trump of being the king of LGBTQIA rights while he has all these topless pictures of men in the video. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it seems like lunatic stuff. It's, it's Trumpian in the worst way. And meanwhile, Trump, because of the lawsuits against him, weirdly has adopted this veneer of integrity in the eyes of a lot of people because he's being unfairly prosecuted in their view. Um, and so he's he's seeming like the more serious guy in the room if 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 Ron DeSantis wants to engage in these kinds of clown shows. It's it's a it's an unexpected and very interesting I mean, that's development. What, yeah.
we'll see if voters agree with that. I don't know. I, I think, I mean, I think if he gets the nomination, there will be, he will not be running any more of the videos you described, but Yeah, but the Dems the are going to hit him on it. The Dems, he's done the things, and that's the problem mm -hmm. with the primary. If you appeal solely to a primary audience without considering how it's going to look in general. I mean, this is the Republican Party's overall problem, yes, is that what, Republic, what Republican primary voters are willing to tolerate or, or what they demand of a candidate, the gap between that and what general election people who might vote for Republicans are going to put up with is probably further apart. Yeah, and I don't even know that Republicans were demanding or supportive of that video. It got a lot of condemnation from even people on the right. Okay, we'll have more Rising right after this. Whoever the next president is, he or she will likely be dealt a heavy hand navigating the financial and geopolitical woes facing America. Speaking with The Economist, J.P. Morgan Chase boss uh, Jamie Dimon expressed having concern over another Trump presidency. Let's watch. I would worry about another Trump presidency, too, by the way. But I think there's always been an isolation element. It took us. It took a lot to get us to World War One. It took a, you know, a lot to get us to World War Two. But I think if you go to Washington D.C. when it comes to Ukraine, it's it's been pretty tight, Republicans and Democrats. So when it was needed, it was there. And I think the other thing we have to explain to the American public is this is we're doing it for America. So of course you have America first. Meaning you know, can you imagine someone running for president saying America second? But we're doing this for America. If America gets isolated, you know, if if autocratic nations kind of cherry pick the world in security and food and economics and development finance, you know, if the Chinese are all over Latin America, which they are in Africa, and we're not there, that's a huge mistake for America. So the, the America should be doing this for itself. We have to explain to the American public why it's important. Diamond's comments come a month after the so-called Wall Street King put rumors of making a presidential run to rest. Now, friend of the show, Glenn Greenwald, weighed in on that particular clip, uh, pointing out that uh, he calls him Obama's favorite banker, uh, says in response to the British interviewer's question that he also worries about Trump's refusal to involve the U.S. in more wars, but says, fortunately, as Ukraine shows, the bipartisan D.C. class doesn't share Trump's sentiment. So kind of openly complaining that the consequence of a Trump presidency might be less U.S. involvement in war, it seems like an unintentional endorsement, frankly, of Trump sure. as president to a lot I of And it's no surprise that he doesn't want another uh, Trump uh, term, given his comments there about Ukraine, which, you know, he tries to frame this as vitally important to America, to U.S. interests, that the border of Ukraine not be drawn slightly further to the east than it is now. Do people agree that this is a vital, pivotal U.S. security issue that Ukraine not cede some territory that has a lot of Russian-speaking, Russian, historically Russian-connected people, who many of which don't wish to be part of Ukraine, that they remain part of the country of Ukraine? That is a top U.S. goal in Jamie Dimon's that is, putting America first is spending billions of dollars to help arm the campaign to keep that territory under the Zelensky regime, a regime that has, you know, had to censor the press and do all sorts of illiberal things in the midst of this war effort. I don't agree with that. I don't think a lot of the American people agree with that, but that is his perspective. Yeah, it's an odd 
uh, an odd shift that's happening. I, I don't know that I've ever seen a liberal acknowledge that there is a kind of sentiment behind America First where Americans that are struggling are concerned about whether or not their interests are going to be um, subjugated you know, uh, to, to the interests of some foreign policy goal, some imperialist goal, et cetera. You know, there is some aspect of American First discourse that can be a kind of tongue-in-cheek, weak-wink, nod-nod for a... Uh, uh, aspects of, of some conservative ideology that I don't personally support. Mm -hmm. But there also is, uh, I think, some good faith investment in people just being concerned as they see money going out the door and none of it is coming their way. And so it, it is interesting to see a, a Democrat sort of wrestle with, mm -hmm. well, is there a good faith interest in American First that's not just this kind of, you know, white supremacist or white nationalist or whatever gloss that often gets put on that framing. Well, but then he, for him to, to turn and say, well, this is American first. Um, foreign adventurism is putting American first. Yeah. Because if we don't show our strength abroad, if we don't compete with Russia and China and Africa from militarily, then when the, uh, people come and attack us later on, we won't have um, global dominance from a military perspective or an economic perspective, which is kind of is saying the quiet part out loud, but also ignores that the way that countries like China have been exerting so much influence in places like Africa is through also infrastructure development and offering favorable trade agreements that actually help those countries from an economic perspective to grow. We see the emergence of BRICS as a, a global power and the addition, the prospective addition of new people to that particular alliance and the effort to get off of the uh, Western European-dominated economic system, at least with respect to commodities, they've, they've demonstrated an incredible ability to decouple themselves from the dollar. So Jamie Dimon saying the quiet part out loud, which is the only way we can get people to keep playing ball with us, because frankly, we've been extractive, unfair. Um, we've applied sanctions to people who don't want to adopt an economic policy that advantages us as a country, is to use our military might. That's mm -hmm. terrifying. And it is extraordinary that this reporter didn't push back in any way. Yeah. It's uh, also telling you know, how he invokes, Jamie Dimon invokes, uh, you know, past conflicts. Okay. I think most people think World War II had some fairly existential stakes and that it was proper to become involved. I don't think that's a particularly controversial also, opinion. Also, we were, um, we were bombed. We were attacked. So. Um, <laughs> World War One. Uh, this is, again, a territorial dispute in Europe that a horrific casualty, the trench warfare, just absolutely awful, anyone who went through it. I'm not sure. Um, I, there, there is an isolationist case for World War I involvement, uh, so I don't want to just let him get away with saying, oh, yeah, it's, it's how dare there were people dragging their feet about the U.S. getting involved in this really horrific conflagration, again, over, like, the boundaries in Europe yeah. um, is, uh, is, is odd. Let's not, you know, let's not just kind of lump that in with World War II. Like, there were, there were, no, there were no Nazis back then. There was no, yeah. there, we weren't attacked, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's also worth noting that Jamie Dimon, he had floated, you know, it was it was floated that he could be a presidential candidate. But it was floated by who? I by know. him? I don't know. <laughs> well, I think that generally speaking, these kinds of articles aren't written in a vacuum. When he announced, you know what, I don't think I'm going to run for president, I was like, well, who, 
who asked? That would be like me doing it. I know everybody's out there demanding well, that Robbie Suave run for president, I but mean, I'm I just, I just, I'm not gonna deign to put the crown <laughs> upon my head. Well, no, I think there are a lot of people that very much think that billionaires are smart and good and better than the rest of us. A lot of people feel that way about Elon Musk. If he were uh, born in America, I think there, there would be calls for him to run for president. Um, and that he, as someone who is known as the liberals' favorite banker, the good guy among the bankers, I've heard people describe him in that way, Obama's favorite banker, that he could help right America. I, mm. For the same reason that, to some folks, Bloomberg offered an appeal. And he also offered an appeal as a safety, as, as, as a safety raft if something happened to Joe Biden, you know, because of his age or whatnot in 2020, there was some concern that Bernie Sanders who wanted very much to tax uh, billionaires and to rein in Wall Street um, was not a good option for someone like Bloomberg or Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon was the focus specifically of a lot of Bernie, at least one Bernie kind of attack ad sort of thing, a crit critical video. Uh, and that they provide that kind of stopgap function because they have their own money and can do an independent run that saves America from somebody who's a genuine populist. That being said, I only brought that up to, to point out that he is heading a bank that is currently involved in a lawsuit about its facilitating of Jeffrey, Jeffrey Epstein's Epstein. financial transactions sure. that enabled him to have this mass ring of grooming and sexual exploitation of minor women. So it is, I think, the height of hubris for him to think that he belongs in the political sphere in the least. Hmm. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky blasted President Biden and the other NATO leaders for failing to extend membership to his country, tweeting, quote, We received signals that certain wording is being discussed without Ukraine. I would like to emphasize that this word fixing is about the invitation to become NATO members, not about Ukraine's membership. Zelensky called the leader's reluctance absurd, adding that it would prompt Russia to, con to continue its, quote, terror. Here's what President Biden said after that decision in a meeting with Zelensky. So, thank you for what you're doing, and uh, the bad news for you is, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> you're stuck with us. So, thank you. Here to discuss the latest developments from the NATO summit is Dov Zagheim, former Undersecretary of Defense. Welcome, Dov. Thank you. All right, so what do you make of both uh, Zelensky's comments that precluding it, uh, uh, Ukraine from joining NATO at, at this time definitively the way that Joe Biden seems to have done is enabling Russia to continue its, quote, terror against Ukraine? Well, you can understand why Zelensky's frustrated. He's always pushed for as much as he can get. Um, he actually backed off uh, from that statement uh, since he made it because he and he said that um, he doesn't want to start a nuclear war by pushing things too quickly in terms of NATO membership. Um, he has a reason to be skeptical. First of all, uh, some of the things that have been promised are just that promises. Um, secondly, uh, there's going to be a new NATO Ukraine council. But he no doubt knows that there was once a NATO-Russia council, and we know how that one's fallen apart. So he's frustrated. He's been given some pretty good guarantees. He's been told that um, he's on an express train to make membership, but that he simply 
will not be able to lead his country into NATO uh, until the war is over, uh, which frankly is, is pretty reasonable. Right. Uh, and, you know, Biden spoke the other day about, obviously, if Ukraine were admitted in the midst of the war, this would put us in ostensibly indirect, in rather than just indirect, but direct confrontation um, with Russia, with a nuclear power. And that's, you know, something the U.S. has to obviously um, avoid. Uh, what do you make of the current um, progress of the war? Obviously, the Biden administration has committed to, uh, you know, continuing to assist, fund um, Zelensky Ukraine for as long as it takes. The phrase for as long as it takes has come up um, a lot. And, the, you know, this is something that has dragged on for a, a while now. I, I, there are concerns about with troop levels in Ukraine over, you know, the fullness of time. Obviously, Russia has a lot more bodies that can throw out this conflict. Where do you see this headed right now? Well, they're still, the Ukrainians are still trying to find uh, a weak spot in the Russian defenses so that they could break through. Um, basically, you, you need about a five to one advantage in order to really break through a defensive line. And they're not there yet. So that's number one. Number two is Mr. Putin uh, clearly is waiting to see what happens in the 2024 elections. He can certainly hold out until then. Uh, remember that the Russians aren't as isolated as people think. They've got the global south so-called behind them, doing business with India, doing business with China, doing business with Brazil and many others. And so he could hold out until the elections. In fact, he could hold out until he gets up for elections in March of 24. And than the November 24 elections of ours. So <clears throat> this is gonna go on for a while. And you gotta remember that if a NATO member is attacked, then NATO is committed. Now, it's not as fully committed as people think. The uh, parliaments have to approve this. But, if, but generally speaking, people think that if a NATO member is attacked, parliaments are gonna approve going to war on its behalf. That is not what we wanna do. That's not what the Europeans want to do. Um, they're certainly ready to help, and we are helping the Ukrainians, um, but they're fighting for themselves and uh, not having others doing the work for them. The Ukrainians don't even want that. They haven't ever said we want American troops in or German troops in or whatever. Um, so I think, as I say, um, Mr. Biden made the right call on this one, as did uh, NATO. Well, if it's not about wanting American troops or German troops or any other NATO ally troops in, what do you, to what do you attribute Ukraine's interest in joining NATO at this time? And I just want to also point out that the cr critique that many anti-war advocates have made is that there was, you know, NATO is supposed to be this post-Cold War commitment, a defensive treaty that was not supposed to move one inch eastward. Obviously, it's expand, expanded repeatedly since that time, and that that expansion is by some arguments, part of the provocation of Putin to invade Ukraine in the first instance, not that that makes it legitimate or legal in the least, but that that's part of the story as to how this conflict started. What do then the conversations, the ongoing conversations about Ukraine joining NATO do to help bring the conflict to a close? Well, I think the feeling in NATO and uh, in the White House is that they don't help bring the conflict to a close. They mm -hmm. can make it worse. Um, what you've been saying is pretty much not that you're echoing Putin, but that's what Putin's been saying, that it's all the West's fault, really, um, that if we hadn't expanded, if we hadn't moved troops into Poland, or, or which we started to do, 
um, none of this would have happened. The only problem is um, it doesn't explain why he seized Crimea. It doesn't explain why he sent troops into eastern Ukraine. It doesn't explain why he attacked Georgia, for example, uh, in 2008. Um, Mr. Putin wants to reinstate the Russian Empire, not the Soviet Empire, the Empire of Peter the Great. And um, he sees Ukraine as part of Russia. The reason they don't call it a war, they call it a special military operation, is because as far as they're concerned, they are fighting essentially a civil war, no different from their war with Chechnya. The fact that Ukraine is an independent country recognized by everybody as such doesn't seem to bother Mr. Putin in the least. Mr. Zekham, you mentioned Crimea as evidence that uh, Putin has these broader territorial uh, goals. But if that's the case, then why the why America's choice not to become engaged militarily when that annexation happened during the Obama administration? Why the change of heart now? What demands American involvement, even if you agree that Putin's actions are illegal and wrong? Well, I, frankly, I think we probably should should have responded more forcefully when uh, Obama, or when rather, excuse me, Russia. Uh, marched into Crimea, um, but we did uh, ramp up our support for Ukraine. I mean, the re part of the reason they're doing so well is we've been training them for since the uh, uh, occupation of Crimea. Uh, and uh, it's clear that um, un unlike Crimea, which has a funny kind of history because it really was part of Russia, and then Nikita Khrushchev, who was then uh, the leader of the Soviet Union and had came from Ukraine, decided that Crimea should be part of Ukraine. Um, so it's a much more complex issue. The rest of it, the rest of the occupation of Ukraine is not complex at all. Can the same so the Russians said, have invaded an independent country? Can the, can the arguments about um, ethnic Russians and the Russian language and the kind of uh, affinity of the people toward Russia in the eastern occupied regions of Ukraine? Can the same argument about that kind of natural affinity between those groups and Russia not be uh, made as, as the argument that you made about um, Crimea having the special relationship with Russia? Well, uh, first of all, eastern Ukraine was never shifted over to Ukraine from Russia in the first place. That's one difference with Crimea. Uh, the second difference is if you look at the behavior of, of people in uh, the eastern part of Ukraine, since the war, since the invasion, the number of people who have identified themselves as Ukrainians, uh, in spite of their being Russian speakers, in spite of whatever connections they have with Russia, has really skyrocketed. Um, they, it's clear that not everybody in eastern Ukraine was happy with what happened before. Uh, and so it's a part of the country. By the way, most of Eastern Europe, and not just Eastern Europe, they, all these countries have minorities. Once you start invading other countries to so-called liberate minorities, there's no end to it. Remember, in 1938, Hitler marched into Czechoslovakia because he claimed that the Sudeten Germans wanted to be part of Germany. And we saw where that led to. Dov hmm. Zakheim, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. GOP lawmakers spearheaded by Representative Matt Gates are urging Congress not to renew the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, better known as FISA, 
Upon its expiration at the end of this year, the lawmakers say that this would lessen the government's ability to spy on citizens. Gates told Fox News Digital, I think most folks are increasingly concerned about centralized power with our national security apparatus. Given how political they've become, I take great lengths in my legislation to point out that it's both left-wing groups like BLM and also folks who are at the Capitol on January 6th who have seen their rights unfairly violated by FISA, and I'm equally aggrieved by both. Warrantless domestic spying was stated as unconstitutional in 2008 within Senator Joe Biden, saying that amendment, uh, sorry, that uh, amending FISA to allow for warrantless surveillance of electronic communications, quote, would be a breathtaking and unconstitutional expansion of the president's powers, according to Reason Magazine. Today, the Biden administration is defending that same law, Reason Magazine explains. Yes, Joe Biden, as a senator, uh, correctly pointed out the uh, the violations of civil liberties that would or could ensue from giving the government this power. Um, now it is his own administration, and everything that many de it was a many Democrats at the time warned against has come to pass. Absolutely, the government has used and abused this tool. It's now Biden's administration doing it, and uh, it's interesting how it has changed. Now, I'm not sure where um, the kind of more progressive members of Congress, your squads, your Rokana type people um, are on this. I, I know many of them have spoken out against FISA in the past. I'm looking for news articles. I'm looking for the them saying, yes, we may disagree with Matt Gates on whatever, but on this, we're with him. I'm not seeing it. I hope that's just because it hasn't been covered and they're going to be right there with him because it is so yeah. important not to reauthorize this. Yeah, back in uh, 2020, um, AOC tweeted strong condemnation of FISA and the expansion of warrantless, the warrantless uh, surveillance state. I'm not sure, you know, I, yeah. I don't want to jump to conclusions, but Biden's flip-flop certainly demonstrates the path for anybody else's uh, potential flip-flop. Right. I think that Matt Gates is right and savvy to point out the extent to which uh, FBI surveillance uh, has been misapplied to uh, equality groups um, from the civil rights era to the present, including um, being used to investigate Black Lives Matter protesters um, and infiltrate uh, these groups in a warrantless and, again, completely outside of the legal checks and balance system sort of way. Um, and we saw last year that there was the SWAT team, um, uh, I don't know, uh, investigate arrest um, of the African socialist leader member uh, who is an, an elder man pulled from his house, asked to sit on the curb. Um, and, you know, harassed mm -hmm. in, in these sorts of ways using the, the surveillance state as a tool. So I think this should be a civil liberties concern that knows no partisan values. We'll see if Matt Gates is able to take the high road here and be the only one who's saying we should all be invested in this or if the progressives will finally step up. Uh, we have to recall how the New York Times has covered this reauthorization battle. Uh, a week ago, July 3rd, there was this article from the New York Times that was titled, GOP Threatens Spy Agencies Surveillance Tool, mm -hmm. with hard-right Republicans attacking federal law enforcement agencies unwilling to extend their broad powers. A major warrantless surveillance program targeting foreigners overseas may face new limits from Congress. I mean, it's, they're, they're in tears about this. Yeah. Uh, it's really 
despicable. It's scary. <laughs> it's scary. Now, to— and a, An intense drive by right-wing Republicans in Congress to vilify the FBI with charges of political bias <laughs> has imperiled a program. I mean, you don't— Like, the to, program has feelings, and they're beating up on it right, or something. Right. And you don't need—you don't need, you know, Republican— it, it, the, the facts are what they are about the misuse of the program. So Political reported in, in May of this year uh, that the FBI's own audit showed— uh, um, uh, or rather, they showed a, a decrease in the misuse of FISA Section 702 authorities, but it's an investigation that people are doing because of— evidence that it's being used against these kind of organizations in a, in a kind of non-partisan uh, sort of way. The court records indicated that the FBI used FISA data to run a query of 19,000 donors involved in a congressional campaign in 2020. You're looking at people's political donations. You're looking at their political membership. Um, people should be concerned. And folks on the left used to be concerned. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm very interested to see how this shakes out. Yeah, this this flip for both parties has been remarkable. Obviously, there were, you know, pro-civil liberties voices on the Democratic side. Um, frankly, there were more of them before. The Republican side, there were always, you know, a couple eclectic, libertarian-inclined yeah. weirdos, God love them, who were against this kind of thing yeah. at a time where most of the party was saying, no, we need this for why? Do you hate America? Do you want the terrorists to win? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, but warning, the libertarians warning that, you know, if you do this, this will be used against you, this will be used against innocent people, be used against yeah. Republicans. Then, you know, the Trump was target uh, Trump's campaign aide, uh, the, the Carter uh, Page, I believe his name was, was surveilled uh, totally improperly by FISA, and Republicans finally did wake up, oh, oh wow, those, <laughs> those lone, kooky people were absolutely right. This is going to be used against us. And so there should be, there should have been, there should be bipartisan, substantial bipartisan opposition to this, because there was already plenty of Democratic opposition yeah. and not enough Republican well, there opposition. Is now there's a lot of Republican opposition, at least some, and yeah. Democrats seem well, to have been like, well, if they're going to use it against Trump, never mind. Well, House Intelligence Committee ranking member Jim Hines, a Democrat from Connecticut, um, said in a statement that um, uh, the, the, the FISA opinion provides further evidence that a bipartisan reauthorization of FISA Section 702 must include robust measures to ensure that FBI employees conduct searches of the Bureau's Section 702 databases in a rigorous and responsible way. So wanting the, the program at least to have some kind of transparency and self-auditing here. But I, I completely agree that there, there should be more vocal objections to the misuse of this um, uh, of these uh, warrants the likes of which we used to see and we're just simply not seeing anymore. Matt Gates said he could not be waterboarded into supporting the reauthorization <laughs> of FISA. Some colorful opposition to this program. We'll have more rising right after this. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill are warming up to the idea of UFOs. In fact, some are outright claiming that they not only exist, but that humanity wouldn't be able to handle the truth about them. Congressman Tim Burchett, who sits on the House Oversight Committee holding UFO hearings, is calling for the files to be released. Here he is on News Nation's Morning in America yesterday. Let's watch. And all I want, all I want is I don't want to send the Pentagon another red, red cent because that's what they're after. They're gonna, they see the, the, the public opinion, people like the legitimate media like yourself are covering it. They're gonna smell dollars. And, um, you know, and honestly, the Pentagon loses a billion, over a billion dollars a year in their audits, and we don't have the guts to do anything about yeah. it. Uh, we don't sir, need to study it anymore. Just release the files. Just release, just release the, the files. unredacted I think files. I 
Burchett also spoke to News Nation's Dan Abrams last night, where he alleged the Department of Defense is attempting to block potential insider witnesses from testifying in the unidentified aerial phenomenon public hearing that the committee is holding later this month. We're trying to nail down all the details, but of course, you know, we have the Pentagon pushing against us, calling some of our witnesses, telling them, you know, don't go testify before this committee. If we have to, we'll use the power of subpoena. We'll bring them in there and make them tell the truth because this thing has been covered up. It is ridiculous. We, the Pentagon needs to come forth with the truth finally, and let's let's put this let's let's move on to another issue. But until then, I think we need to find out what's going on. Latest polling shows that plenty of people think the government is in fact hiding the truth about what it might know about UFOs. According to Redfield and Wilton Strategies, 57% of those surveyed said they believe the government has more information about UFOs and alien life than it's letting on. I Only 57%? Again, I'm, I'm more skeptical than you. I think that comes through in our about alien life in general. I think this comes through in our discussions. But I, I too, would, of course, say that, yes, they know more than they're letting on. They know more on every single subject than they're letting on because they are, you know, uh, hiding. They're, 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 there's a lack of transparency by, by habit, by inclination and ideology. Yeah, I do appreciate um, Burchett's focus on the... Pentagon audit issue, the enormous sums of money that it loses routinely. I believe it's failed its last five audits. There was the news cycle of the government discovering $6.3 billion, $6 billion extra to, that we gave to Ukraine. That we sent to Ukraine. How nice of us. You know, in, in, a, world Thank you, where, <laughs> in a world where there's so much um, criticism about government spending from conservatives, it is refreshing, even if it's only in this kind of limited context, to see some of that concern about military spending and not just spending on social programs that so many people, especially in states like Tennessee, where he's from, really rely on. That being said, I mean, he wrote this op-ed um, recently about this issue. He points out that, uh, that we were supposed to Quoting, we were supposed to get a fresh new start toward new answers about these UAPs in June of 2021 when the Pentagon released an unclassified report on the existence of UAPs. But unfortunately, of the 144 reported UAP encounters the report discussed, it provided an explanation for just one. Who on earth wants to read a report that provides information on less than 1% of the encounters it's supposed to address? He goes on to point out all of these moments where we were supposed to have disclosures where none were forthcoming, the closed-door hearings with classified information that he is characterizing as sort of a bait-and-switch and, switch and a, a shell game of sorts. He says this lack of transparency isn't just unfair to the public, but it could put the safety of our pilots in jeopardy um, because of so, so many spottings come um, from military personnel who are in the air. So, you know, mm. this, this is an issue that has galvanized folks. I understand why, as a longtime sci-fi nerd and Trekkie. Um, I, I feel like I do have an obligation to say that I hope that this, the focus on this issue doesn't come at the expense on focusing on the kind of domestic spending that a lot of people, including in his district, are really struggling with. Uh, I read recently that 24 percent, almost a quarter of everybody who lives in Tennessee has had medical debt negatively affect their credit rating. I mean, there are a lot of problems here mm -hmm. on the ground, but I hope that he has the uh, uh, bandwidth to address both. He also said, uh, this is according to Fox News, uh, he was discussing the um, hypothetical technology the aliens could have um, yeah. that 
if they can travel light years at the speeds that we've seen, physics we know fly underwater, don't show a heat trail, things like that, we're vastly out of our league. They're out there, they're out there. If they have this kind of technology, they could turn us into a charcoal briquette. What's that? I, I that don't sounds have a clue. scary. <laughs> I don't have a clue. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Let's. Oh, we have some more. Let's play it. Go ahead. Cole Briquette comment. Everybody always quotes me on that. And um, the reality is these folks, they, if they are beings from light years away or wherever, the dark side of the moon, I don't know, um, they, their technology is so incredible that, that they could have done us, if they can travel light years to visit our little measly planet, um, then their technology is so superior to anything we've ever seen. And well, you can some, see some that of if you watch lawmakers. the videos that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the TikTok video right there, or TikTok. I keep saying TikTok. TikTok video there is. I mean, okay. it's hard to figure out what it, what's going on there. Um, but it's interesting. Some of the lawmakers will say, "Oh, and we need to know too if it's possibly, uh, you know, craft developed by China or Russia or one of our adversaries." But if you watch some of these videos, I mean, if if, if China or Russia. Uh, you know, have that kind of technology, I mean, that would be crazy. It seems unlikely, don't you think? Yeah. Do you think that uh, they would have walked over Ukraine and half the world by now, uh, Russia would have, and China would own us? I mean, Putin's ego, he would have landed one of those UFOs on the White House lawn, yeah. got out bare-chested, wrestled the president, got back in his <laughs> UFO and head back to Mother Russia. I mean, let's be honest with that ego and, and that, and they're so power-hungry. And China's the same way. So it, you can't, and, and also our military, are all these pilots lying? Are they risking their lives, their careers, their retirement, everything they have, their reputations uh, to, to, for, for something like this? No, I, I say no. This guy's a character. He is indeed. Remember, he was the one who, after the Covenant uh, shooting, was being interviewed about what to do about the, the, that school shooting. And uh, he said, that's a horrible, horrible situation. We're not going to fix it. In this moment that was kind of mm. galling on the, I think it was on the steps of a Capitol building, um, where people thought it reflected the inability to do any lawmaking in the United States of America at this point, even when there's a collectively shared horror at an event like that happening for various reasons. Um, and so it, it is interesting. He's doggedly pursuing a uh, us learning more about what's happening. What in were our we skies, looking at in that video? Technology. The green with the green. Less dogged about uh, fixing our school shooting uh, mass violence problem, mm -hmm. but what can you do? Maybe this is a more tackleable problem. What did you think we were looking at in this? I don't know. I see a blinking triangle. To be honest, I've seen more credible-looking UFO videos. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what that is. The that, I mean. So, Blinking that kind of looks like the distortion. Like a flying pizza piece? Well, it's so much distortion that the shape could be, you know, caused by that. Like, oh. to me, this, the, the kind of blinking of it seems, you it's know, like airplane-ish. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I, you know I've, I've seen other kinds of videos that I think raise some questions and yeah. concerns. And I've, I know people who have had sightings themselves, so I'm certainly... Uh, not incredulous about the possibility of there being something out there at all. Well, we hope they do release the files. They should release the files. I want to hear from primary sources. I want to hear from the people who have seen things, what they've seen, what they told the government, what our government has. If they have, again, it has been alleged by David Grosh that they have actual alien spacecrafts and pilots, people who were, not people, life forms or whatever it was that were flying those crafts. That would be 
very important to disclose to the public if there is actually evidence of that. So we would like to learn more about it, and we'll have more rising right after this. Actor and music artist Ice Cube responded to critics on Twitter over his picture with RFK Jr. tweeting, for all the simple-minded short bus people out there, a picture is not an endorsement. This follows a photograph uh, that was taken after, I believe, they attended a basketball game together. And this set off a Twitter and this set off a Twitter firestorm in part because of how RFK Jr. chose to caption the picture. He wrote, Dennis Kucinich and I spent a wonderful evening with one of our country's most influential and outspoken civil rights leaders, Ice Cube. Ice Cube notably has been political for his entire life. Mm -hmm. The content of his music has been explicitly political and critical of the police. Um, the use of application of uh, inappropriate force, the over-policing of black neighborhoods in particular, in particular um, economic resources not being evenly distributed and those kinds of things. But it does feel like somewhat of a stretch to characterize him as a civil rights leader. And many, many people on the internet uh, voiced their concerns about him being framed in that way. Some folks, I know that Margaret, Margaret Kimberly, who is a journalist for a left media outlet, pointed out that um, artists, musicians, et cetera, and other racial groups don't get framed as leaders on political issues as frequently as it seems sometimes black folks do. Um, can you? Th she tweeted out something along the lines of, can you think of another non-black person who's like an artist, like Sting or... I don't know. Aha. Uh -huh. I don't know why I'm having trouble thinking of Wait, what white musical artists. Just, just musical white musical artists, artists who are white. <laughs> yes. Sam Miley Smith. Cyrus. <laughs> Sam Smith. Exactly. Nobody, if they say something politically, they're not held up as, as movement leaders. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so what do, you, what do you make of the criticism that he's getting about uh, this picture? Um, my thought when looking at that picture is there's it's just a weird picture, kind of. <laughs> RFK Jr.'s arm is huge. So we're actually we're actually blocking it because of the label we have. Can we make the label go away? There it is. Doesn't doesn't <laughs> I mean he, the the dude is ripped. I, I like I I get it. Um he just looks massive there. Yeah, I mean, it, it, his proportions are giving Wreck-It Ralph. Maybe compared to the other it, two? It's giving video game. But that's, yeah. I mean, that's how, how Buffy is. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, we had a whole media cycle about whether or not he's a better leader because yeah. he's so He looks so like he's fresh gym. off a couple hundred push-ups there. Yeah, so this is ongoing, and it seems like the cr critique of Ice, Ice Cube is bled over from just the way he's being mm -hmm. described as a civil rights leader to also some substantive concerns that he is endorsing RFK Jr. and some members of the uh, of, of his his following his community saying that they disagree with that. So he this is these are tweets that are happening almost in real time now. He responded to someone saying, um, "Are you saying, sir, that you've endorsed every single person you've taken a picture with?" Um, pushing back against the idea sure. that he should be associated with perhaps RFK Jr.'s political beliefs just because he's associated with him in a photograph. Um, he's responding to someone who asked, it's not an endorsement, but would you take a picture with David Duke, the segregationist, and why not? There's your answer. I don't know if that's a fair comparison there, yeah. but you can see the argument that the person is making. Yeah. Um, Ice Cube was on Joe Rogan recently, right? Yes. We've played clips from that. So, you know, people, yeah, people, I don't think it's fair to read too much into, like, you appear in a picture with someone, you're not necessarily endorsing them, A. Um, 
you know, B, it's whatever. Like, RFK Jr.'s history of views on what on civil rights. I mean, he's a he is a Democrat in like good standing on civil rights issue. Whatever people might object to his view of of vaccines or COVID policies. Um, he's he's a pretty normal Democrat, right, on civil rights adjacent things. So it, it, I don't know what. But what Robbie, the you know it's not about is. that. You know that the mainstream no, it's, it's, media. No, it's, it's about sh uh, smearing, shaming anyone for having anything to do with RFK Jr. in any context. Right. That's what it's about. And, and it's interesting because Ice Cube has a history of being similarly maligned for taking positions that are oppositional to the Democratic Party. So back in 2020, he innovated this thing called the Contract for Black America. My understanding is that he worked closely with respected, left-leaning, former Bernie surrogate uh, ec economist um, Derek Hamilton about a plan to help close the wealth gap and help black uh, entrepreneur, entrepreneurs succeed and things like that. And he was shopping it around and asking for the two leading or the two general uh, election candidates, Biden and Trump, to weigh in and give it a hearing and to make their pitch as to what they were going to do mm -hmm. for black Americans specifically. Donald Trump met with him directly. I believe Joe Biden sent some people to meet with him. And his meeting with uh, Donald Trump, or Donald Trump's people, whichever it was, was characterized as him endorsing Donald Trump at that time or somehow being Did he appear um, in a picture with him, too? <laughs> I don't believe yeah. he did. But was seen as him expressing support for all of Donald Trump's policies and opinions, as opposed to being someone who is looking for the potential future presidents of America to be beholden to his community. Mm -hmm. And this has echoes of that, that there's absolutely no tolerance, it seems, among Democrats for anyone who's even willing to make the slightest of demands in exchange for their votes. And that includes, apparently, even acknowledging that there are other people running in the Democratic um, primary that could help advance Ice Cube's agenda, which is supposed to be substantively the agenda that groups like the NAACP, et cetera, are advancing. But it does seem like they've taken a seat at the table and have mm -hmm. self-silenced in order to get that access to the Biden administration. I'm just, I'm just Googling like the, la the most recent RFK Jr. Um, headlines. We haven't talked about him as much this week. Um, Axios, RFK Jr.'s campaign gear not union-made or made in the USA. Maybe that's something that people care about. I don't care about that. I mean, I think um, people care about that, but neither is Joe Biden's campaign. I mean, what, are, what does it even mean? Uh, does he have a unified RFK workforce? Jr.'s real motive from Politico, opinion, my regrets after debating RFK, that's in the New York Times. Um, who debated him? Farad Manju, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, the complicity of RFK Jr. coverage, that's from the Columbia Journalism Review. Yeah. I wonder if we're being attacked. Well, look, there is, I think, some natural identity of interest between Ice Cube and RFK Jr. insofar as they've been willing to take these counterculture positions. Mm -hmm. Ice Cube appeared on a popular morning radio show with Charlemagne the God, The Breakfast Club, this morning, and he offered up a critique of AI. This is particularly interesting since he's coming from the perspective of an artist. Let's take a look at that. Business and not ever. I think it's the word ever. I think it's gonna put a lot of people out of business and out of work and everything is gonna be more vanilla. <laughs> you know, it's not gonna be more creative. It's actually gonna go the other way. And um, people are gonna get lazier yep. and mm -hmm. um, nobody's gonna work hard and nobody's gonna attain the knowledge so they can write it down. They're right. just gonna ask for the knowledge. Yep. And um, 
and you know, people are just gonna get stupider. So he's hardly the first artist to raise these concerns over what the effect of AI are going to be. Mm. It's the basis of um, some of the writer strike uh, concerns that are being raised um, in Hollywood right now. What do you make of this critique of AI? It sounds um, Luddite to me. Um, I think, you know, we should be reasonably concerned about, we don't wanna, you know, hand over power to an artificial intelligence or something, but, Innovations in the communication spaces have improved our lives in all sorts of ways. We have better quality movies and TV. I'm, I'm not as much of a music aficionado as those other mediums, so right, I have less Robbie, expertise here. To but say that technology people lose their jobs because there's a better like the horse and buggy person goes out of business when the cars come along. I mean, but I wait a minute. There's a presumption built into what you said that things are better, that the content mm -hmm. is better, that there's an improvement. I think it's very different to say we came up with technology to make CGI effects and so now we're going to use them in movies and that makes us be able to do things on a smaller budget than before, then I'm going to replace an entire script with an AI-generated script that's cribbing information from real writers who are no longer going to get compensated and also spitting out a product that, as of now, is not good. Moreover, artists, musical artists have raised concerns. If it's concerns. not good, then they won't be able to do that. No. Then the I movies will, or the music will I, be bad. I don't think that that's how this is panning out. We've seen, you're a journalist in your, in your own industry, humans have been used to churn out these kind of low quality content farms on websites like Gawker and Dazzle back in the day, where people are asked to write these 500 word pieces, multiple pieces a day. There's arguments about the quality being not great, BuzzFeed listicles and things like that. But are we going to live in a world where we move more into that lane of getting that kind of content because you have, have an AI generated AP style article that doesn't really offer much in the way of journalism? And is that benefiting our broader community not to have resources put toward investigative journalists because there's all of this investment I, I and cutting budgets and letting computers do the work. I think it's not good and then people won't engage with it and they won't want it. Like the higher quality stuff wins out. If it becomes just as good as the high quality stuff, then yeah, there's going to be a creative destruction in this in this field, but I'm not worried yeah, about I, it. Yeah, I don't think that that's the case with writing. I think that we've already seen journalism declining quality. Again, if the BuzzFeed listicle department is, you know, replaced by robots, I don't think this yeah, is a great loss Yeah, I think in journalism we've already seen an enormous decline in quality that's been incredibly well documented. Local news has been devastated, and we know much less about our country and our community than we did even 30 years ago. I do think I, that with the music, in the musical context, that. Um, that artists are concerned because there's such, the technology is very, very good at making it, so you, you can put into the, the app, make Ice Cube sing um, Mary had a little lamb, and it will sound like his voice. We've, you know, I'm sure you've that heard that. Sounds those. cool and awesome. Not something to oppose. Yeah, um, but the the but question is go. whether or not he should be compensated for someone stealing well, his that's, voice. I'm not saying he shouldn't be compensated. That's a legal question. Well, that's, that's what he's raising. That's the very concern that he's raising. So we'll have rising for you right after this. Representative Matt Gates grilled FBI Director Christopher Wray during a House Judiciary meeting on the Hill today. Let's watch some of that. But I have other questions. I'm sitting here with my father. I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to forever hold a grudge, that you will regret not following my direction. I am sitting here waiting for the call with my father. Sounds like a shakedown, doesn't it, Director? I'm not going to get into commenting on that. 
Well, you, you, you seem deeply uncurious about it, don't you? Almost suspiciously uncurious. Are you protecting the Bidens? Absolutely not. The FBI well, does not and has no well, hold interest on. in You won't answer the question about whether or not that's a shakedown, and everybody knows why you won't answer it. Because to, ev to the millions of people who will see this, they know it is. And your inability to acknowledge that is deeply revealing about you. But that's interesting, asking him to respond at very least to the optics of it. You know, I would expect, given this, this, this at least on its face, bad optics of it, that he would say, well, I agree that that was suspicious and a, sus a suspicious exchange. We looked into it and didn't see any evidence of wrongdoing. That's the, the more of the kind of response I would expect. And I do think, yeah, at least he from said, a rhetorical perspective— yeah, and then he got defensive about the accusation that the FBI was biased, but that even is a deflection from the core issue here that Gates is raising, which is, did you actually have any interest in investigating this right. moment, this, this um Because call? that's what we're all wondering about, because, again, I've said this a thousand times, I'll say it again, it's not really about, shouldn't be about, whether Hunter Biden had a drug addiction and misreported it on a gun purchasing form. It's about whether he used his last name to try—I mean, it, it, there's compelling evidence that he did, in fact, try to use his, his last name to do, um, to do influence peddling, and then whether Joe Biden was part of that scheme unwittingly or wittingly. That's what people are, want to know. That's what they deserve to know. That speaks to the potential alleged corruption of this family. And the lack of curiosity about that, right, if he said you looked into it and it's not true or it's manipulated or those, are, those were right. from the WhatsApp or, messages, or they're not real. Or Hunter was trying to and, get and, his father involved and his father was Joe not said, listen here, Jack, no, yeah. no sirree, Bob. Yeah. Fine, but uh, it's—no, we, we can't—stop besmirching the institutional— the reputation yeah. of law enforcement. How dare you? Well, Ray also answered questions about his department's investigation into January 6th. Uh, Memphis, uh, how many individuals were either FBI uh, employees or people that the FBI had made contact with were in the January 6th uh, entry of the Capitol and surrounding area? So I, I really need to be careful here talking about uh, where we have or have not used confidential human sources. Was there one January or more? Was there or one or more individuals that would fit that description on January 6th that were in or around the Capitol? I, I believe there is a uh, a filing in one of the January 6th cases that can provide a little more information about this, and I'm happy to see if we can follow back up with you. I, I just want that. an yeah. answer. Was there one or more? I mean, you would know if there was at least one individual who worked for the FBI. Who, who entered the Capitol on that day? Uh, I can't, again, I just can't speak to that here, but I'm happy to get the court filing look, that- Look, it's been two years, and you're now, you're now come before us. The gentleman asks these questions, makes all kinds of insinuations, and you, you nod your head yes, and then I ask you simply, was there one or more? And you won't answer that. So I'm going to make the assumption that there was more than one, more than five, more than 10, and that you're ducking uh, the, the question because you don't want to answer for the fact that you had at least one and somehow missed understanding that some of the individuals were very dangerous and that there were others inciting individuals to enter the Capitol after others broke windows. So, uh, Again, Ray seems to be 
missing the point in a way that is making himself seem guiltier or the FBI seem guiltier than they may or may not be. The, the well, problem, they're just guilty. <laughs> well, the problem isn't necessarily the presence of, like, in a, in a world where we like the FBI and we think they serve a good police mm -hmm. function and there was intelligence about there being some fracas at uh, the uh, inauguration and that you need to make sure that nothing bad happens to the president and democracy. Okay, FBI people in the crowd monitoring the situation isn't what's so nefarious. What's nefarious is the idea that it's the FBI plants that are instigating the riot and the illegal behavior that has now become such a polarizing issue. So, you know, choosing to pick your battle and, and look like you're, you're prevaricating over whether or not there, there is even an FBI agent there right. is not the battle you should be fighting. What you should be fighting is the conversation over whether or not they behaved wrongly right. and this was a false flag or whatever. Right. It's certainly not plausible that Christopher Ray would not know how many undercover agents, roughly, or that there was were even involved. One. Right. <laughs> no? he, he should know. If he genuinely doesn't know, that itself is a huge Negligence. indictment of the FBI, yeah. what they're losing track, the same way the Pentagon is losing billions of dollars in right. Ukraine and elsewhere, they're just like losing track of right. their assets. I mean, that, that's not good because some of these. Some of the assets of the undercover people are not actually uh, just in general in these situations. There's both like a genuine undercover agent, someone who works for federal law enforcement, and then there's assets. Then there are people who might very well be, you know, genuine members of a militia group or a terrorist group or something, but for whatever reason, because they're being blackmailed, because they're just financially seeking, because they've had a change of heart, variety of reasons, are cooperating with the FBI or they're trying yeah. to avoid prosecution like the, the themselves. The Proud Boys leader, who was the FBI informant, right? Um, right. Enrique. Tario? Yes. Yeah, I mean, so all those people are FBI yeah, informants. <laughs> you can't you can't throw a rock at a Proud Boys gathering without right. hitting an FBI informant. Um, so that's so obviously he does know. He was trying not to say. And then yes, there are two reasons to be concerned about that. So so many you know some Republicans saying that uh, some conservatives are going to try to say that the the people that did the illegal activity did so at the behest mm -hmm. of those in the crowd who were among law enforcement. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, one theory. I don't know that that's really been borne out necessarily, but it could also just be, but what, what was the purpose of those assets and law enforcement agencies embedded if not to prevent this from happening, which they totally failed to do, either by, you know, reporting to their superiors that this is what's being organized or by, you know, they go, okay, okay actually, I'm throwing off my disguise now. Stop what you're doing. You're under arrest to stop this from happening. Yeah. You know, it just, it, 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 uh, it didn't work. Representative Daryl Issa, um, by the way, pressed Ray on the FBI's pressuring of social media companies on their content moderation decisions. Let's watch that as well. Uh, on things like where, where COVID came from, where do you find the national security interest in that? Where, where do you find the interest in free speech of American citizens being taken down? And I repeat, free speech of American citizens. Where, where do you have that authority? So we don't uh, ask social media companies uh, to censor information or suppress information uh, when it comes to national security threats, certainly. Uh, so what we do do is alert them when some other intelligence agency gives us information about a foreign intelligence service being behind some account, we will call social media companies' attention to that. But at the end of the day, we're very clear that it's up to the social media companies to decide whether to do something about it. The suggestion it or not, of the most powerful law enforcement operation is not a suggestion. It is, in fact, effectively an order. Mr. Chairman, I. So, this was the issue RFK Jr. was getting at in that interview we discussed. I, I thought 
he had a good grasp of the situation. You know, at the end of the day, it is a subjective assessment whether or not the FBI or any other intelligence agency is passing on legitimate intel of risks that social media companies should be aware of versus illegitimate intelligence that is calculated to have some political outcome one way or the other. And to say, uh, you know, uh, we were talking about this in the context of that um, injunction that specifically named RFK Jr. Um, that says, you know, that the FBI, these intelligence agencies can't do this. Well, it acknowledged that there is going to have to be some subjective sense of who draws the line between what is kind of a legitimate mm -hmm. advice versus something that looks coercive, as it was described there, right. as an order. Congress is going to have to do that, probably. Well, Congress is the one that's the problem. I mean, like, that's, it, this is like a, one of these. Well, Congress is, I mean, no, these are rogue agencies, not, they're just, they're, these are rogue agencies operating way beyond their authority. They're flagging um, uh, lists of accounts that they've gotten from dubious uh, these, 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 um, you know, disinformation experts. These are lists of people supposedly Russian bots, actually genuine Americans. They flagged joke tweets. They flagged all sorts of things, um, even before getting into the well. Is this a foreign yeah, this person is, behind it? I mean, question. you've made this argument so many times, Robbie, that the initial gloss in the Twitter files was, oh no, the FBI is being like having all this influence, and mm -hmm. it's 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 very very bad. And the people at Twitter are liberal patsies who are swallowing this all down like the idiots that they are. No, and then, no, no, I'm literally saying that you didn't oh, say okay. that. That was the initial gloss. For sure. However, you pointed out that that wasn't accurate and true. That, in fact, the people at Twitter were doing a lot of really good pushback. Their liberalism right. aside, they were able to push back and not actually implement the overwhelming majority of the requests that the FBI was giving to them, with some big notable exceptions like the Hunter Biden laptop situation, right? Right. And over time, the weight and the pressure, not just from law enforcement, but also because of their the degree to which they were being shamed and attacked in the mainstream media for right. not doing right. this seriously caused them to eventually begrudgingly throw up their hands. So and that's do more the thing. That kind of thing. If, if it's the media pressure that's causing Twitter to make well, mistakes. Obviously, there's nothing we can do about that. Yeah, and and that, that's what I'm, I'm kind of getting at here, where it's, it's not that the concern isn't legitimate, that you can be under mm -hmm. so much pressure from whatever source, including the government, which is kind of naturally coercive because of how much power right. it has to do things that you shouldn't do, at what point are you expecting, you know, at what point mm -hmm. is the onus on the social media company to basically say, well, I'm going to, I have to resist versus on these external actors to behave in these kind of subjective and narrowly circumscribed ways. I think that's a legitimately difficult question. Well, sure. But it's just, we can't, uh, we can't force the social media company to do things in a different, in a way that we might like better, um, we can't force the mainstream media to be fair or more discerning of no, threats. You, we can force government agencies to stop doing this. But you That's could all do, we can you do. You could do something like you've talked about this. You've brought this up mm -hmm. before that sometimes elected officials will threaten withholding Section 230 protections if they don't do X, Y, and Z. We recently uh, were discussing a tweet from Michael Schellenberger that suggested that that happen to companies that don't have sufficient transparency, et cetera. And we agree that that seemed like a bad idea, that you shouldn't basically, the government should be in a position to say, I'm basically going to undermine your ability to operate right. as, a, as, a, as a company. It said in, the in, in this dis uh, 
decision by Judge Doughty, it says he says he claims obviously you know a higher court will see if they the Supreme Court would agree with this. I suspect our current Supreme Court would agree with this. He, it says explicitly that using the threat of revoking Section 230 as a way to induce compliance with censorship is uh, is unconstitutional violation of the amendment. Yeah. So I, I would. The implication of that is that you know threatening to take away Section 230 for doing like either in either direction yes, it's going to be the same it, problem. The, the so, people need but to that make speaks to what I'm saying is no, that we can't I, force the social media companies to behave differently. Yeah, I, I think that one way to make it less coercive mm -hmm. is to create some guarantees for these companies with respect to uh, Section 230 and to have some settled decisions here. Whether or not to provide an organization a company with Section 230 should be dependent on factors separate and apart from these political considerations. I think it's fine to make an assessment about whether or not they're acting as a publisher versus acting as like a neutral Section 230 organization. Those kind of conversations are, are, are more value neutral and are in line with how we generally treat the telephone company, Google, internet well, providers, and things like that. But making it on the basis of how you manage there. information is just so subjective that I don't want those threats to be levied in one way or the other. And it feels like we need to settle that issue or else it's going to be continued to to be a political ping pong I mean again I'm most interested in firing the people <laughs> for Christopher Ray who sent these messages I think that would send a message to whoever is it or, or, or again or just like have it be practiced in the way that the Hatch Act you can't federal employees can't you know engage in political activity on the dime of the tech there's some you know Law, something like that that says, hey, good, if you're Rob luck. Flaherty, you work for the Biden White House, and you send an email saying, why is this satire about you know Biden's granddaughter still up, um, you lose your job or you pay a fine or Do something. Do you think there's a such thing as a legitimate kind of security risk um, or, let's say, foreign interference that the FBI or any other intelligence agencies could legitimately want to flag for a social media company like this. Theoretically, child trafficking ring, something like that. Theoretically, yes, but the okay, the so vast is, majority has. But it's so sure. But the, but that it has been used as a justification. But that's the problem. So many times. As long as you believe that theoretically there is some good reason for an intelligence agency to reach out to a social media company, someone's going to have to be constantly policing the line between what a good reason is and what a well, bad reason is. I know, but the, the line needs to get. We've we've slid down the slippery slope way too much, and we have to have a default presumption now that there's been a default presumption that the government reaching out is in good faith, and there's some actual problem they need to alert the company about. The presumption should be that that is not the case. Well, Twitter internally does not seem to have treated that as a default presumption, given how many of those requests that they shut down. But I do think it's worth reiterating that the only reason we know about any of this is because of the Twitter files which we don't have anymore, in which there's no evidence that Elon Musk is going to be transparent going forward with Twitter or Mark Zuckerberg or any of these other people. That being said, I think that perhaps the solution to this is that transparency. So it's not about saying the FBI can't say X, Y, and Z, but if the mm -hmm. FBI knows that every single email that it sends has to be made public. That's all, I mean, Schellenberger has said that as well, and yeah, yeah I think that would now be there, I'm sure that there are like security concerns about Well, it's probably like FOIA, it's blah, a public blah, blah, records blah. request type thing. There could, be be a, there could be a more comprehensive FOIA type thing yeah. that uh, allows for um, automatic or easier discoverability of these communications. Yeah. 
Well, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll have 2024 Democratic candidate Marianne Williamson on the show for a wide-ranging, lengthy interview. I'm looking forward to it. Bree's looking forward to it. We hope you're looking forward to it as well. Yeah, you won't want to miss that one. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. So, in fact, you never miss any of this kind of content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.